Please take your Bibles and turn to Mark 14. It's a blessing to gather once again and, as Daryl said, close this Lord's Day together. Last time, um, as I mentioned earlier, we um, dealt with the passage of Scripture leading up to um, the Lord's Supper and actually got into it a little bit in as far as Christ prophesying one of the disciples that would betray him. And um, first we saw the instructions that Jesus gave to go and find a place in Jerusalem for them to um, celebrate the Passover, to celebrate this time with his disciples. And they did that. And then we um, saw how Jesus prophesied that one of the disciples would betray him, and the disciples were shocked and wondered, and, and many of them asked, Lord, is it I? They, they, they couldn't imagine any of them doing that, and they seemed shocked and bewildered. And as we look back upon that, we know, of course, it was Judas, but at that time, um, they couldn't understand how any, any of them could do such a thing. And Last time we stopped just short of the details of the Passover meal that the Lord shared with his disciples. And so this evening we want to get into that text and pick it up the reading in verse 22. So um, before we read God's word, let us pray and ask his mercy and blessing upon it. Let us pray. Lord God, you have given us your word and we are grateful. Lord, we know that it is authoritative over us. And Lord, we know that it is from you. And so, Lord, we, we want to sit under its authority because we know that it is not just words on a page. It is the very words of God. So, Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your word. And, and Lord, I pray that it would be quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, that it, would, that it would pierce our hearts, Lord, that it would penetrate our minds. And, Lord, that that we would, could say with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts here this evening would be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark 14, beginning with verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he emphatic, he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word this evening. 
As I was reading that, I am reminded again of Mark's um, brevity, how, how quickly he states so much. And there is so much in this text that we really need to slow down and savor it for a few moments. I've titled this text this evening, The Faithful Christ and the Failing Disciples. And I, I want us to, the reason I have done this, partly because I, I, I want to move us on in the text, but, and it's important to recognize the, the, um, the depth of the meaning of, of the Lord's Supper and, and what we do when we partake of communion, when we partake of the Lord's Supper. But I think there's a special beauty and significance that we can see in this as we see it compared with Christ's prophecy of Peter's denial that we read in the second half of our text this evening. So I want us to consider it under those two headings, the institution of the Lord's Supper and the failing of the Lord's disciples. As we said last time, um, just speaking a little bit about the significance of the Passover meal. It is one of, of course, the high, high feasts of God's people, perhaps the, the most important feast when it, when it celebrates the exodus, the, the bringing out of God's people from slavery in Egypt from after being there for hundreds of years. Um, it remembered God's preservation of his people through the, the tenth plague upon the firstborn, the tenth and final plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. It was full of meaning that looked back on that event. And if we understand a little bit of, of how the Passover meal was done, I think it will help us as we think about what Christ did and how Christ changed that as we read here in our text. Of course, it involved a lamb being slaughtered. That pointed back to the lamb that was slaughtered and whose blood was placed upon the mantle that provided the protection from the angel of death that was there to kill the firstborn of the Egyptians. But a, a lamb would be slaughtered at the temple and then brought back to the house to be prepared. That is why Passover had to be celebrated in Jerusalem. That's why there were thousands upon thousands of extra people there, because they came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover in this way. The meal would begin with a cup of wine, the first of four, actually, cups of wine that, that were given then. And then there would be some, some maybe some appetizers or hors d'oeuvres, there would be some herbs and stewed fruit, and, and some commentators said that the consistency of that fruit would remind them of the mortar, of, of the bricks from their, day, their days of slavery. And then the oldest son would ask the father. This was a meal that was typically celebrated within families, and the oldest son would ask the father, Father, what is the meaning of these things? Of course, that was a setup. So the father could tell of God's faithfulness in bringing his people out of Egypt. They would sing some of the halal psalms from Psalm 119 to 118. And then the father would break the unleavened bread. Of course, the house had been purged of leaven because of, the, of, of how that pointed back to the, the fact that they could have no leaven. They only had to have bread that they could that they didn't have to wait upon for it to rise. And so they purged their homes of, le unleavened, of leaven. And so they would break, the father then would break the unleavened bread and offer a prayer that 
went like this. The Lord our God, sovereign of the world, who has caused bread to come forth out of the earth. Praise be to his name. And it was at this point that Christ broke the bread and said the words of verse 22. Take, this is my body. Then came the main meal of roasted lamb and fruit along with a second cup of wine. And then later there was another cup, the cup of blessing. And it was during this third cup that Jesus uttered the words, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Then they would sing some more of those, of those psalms that were associated with this feast. And normally then the fourth cup was consumed. However, Jesus did not drink that cup. Instead, he said he would not drink again of the fruit of the vine until he drank it anew with them in his kingdom. And I want us to look at this, at this section under three headings, and I have shamelessly stolen this from another sermon, but I think it's very biblical. And those three subpoints under this first section is covenant, communion, and consummation. And all of these things point to our relationship with God in the past, in the present, and or in the future. First of all, covenant. This meal, of course, is full, as we've already said, is full of covenantal symbolism. In fact, Mark's account particularly is rich in, in both pointing to Christ's death and towards his future return. And we must notice that Jesus does not merely celebrate this Passover meal in the way that it had been done for hundreds of years. He, he breaks into this prescribed ritual with his own words to give it greater meaning, to explain the true and real meaning of it as he breaks in to what is normally what they would have heard as they celebrated it. First, he speaks of giving of his body as he is breaking the bread. Next, he speaks of his blood being the blood of the covenant and it being poured out for many. He's already spoken of his death and here he is giving them vivid pictures of what is to happen to him. His body is going to be broken. His blood is going to be poured out. That speaks of his soon death. Christ's reference to the blood of the covenant would likely bring Exodus 24 to the minds of the disciples. This passage here in Exodus, and remember that the giving of the law is in Exodus 20. The Passover is in earlier chapters, but many things are taking place here in the middle of the book of, of Exodus. And in Exodus 24, they've just come out, and they've just, they've just come out of Egypt, and they have just received the law. And Moses has just come down from Sinai and is reading the book of the law to the people. And what do the people do? They respond with enthusiasm. They say that all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Now, we know, of course, they didn't always hold true to that. And it wasn't long before they were worshiping an idol. But yet on that day, they were filled with with pride and enthusiasm to follow the Lord God. They eagerly celebrated God's blessing 
and God's law. And then in verse 8 of, of chapter 24, we read, And Moses took the blood, the blood of, of previously offered sacrifices, and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, this ceremony sounds strange and foreign to us to think about blood being sprinkled on, on individuals or the people of God. But for these people at the foot of Sinai, they wanted to be under the blood. They wanted to be sprinkled. They wanted to be full participants in the covenant blessings that were promised to them. That blood sprinkled upon them said, you are part of the covenant. The exodus and the giving of the law was a great nationalizing event in the life of the people of God. But now we who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are not a nation of individuals. We are the church. We are the called out ones. We are the ones that who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. We, that blood has been applied to us. We are under the new covenant. And there's other rich symbolism at play here from the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 11 and 12 speaks of the suffering servant who is not named in that text as the Messiah, but yet we can't help but know that he is as we read it. Isaiah 53 reminds us that he is the one who bears the iniquities of his people and he makes them righteous. How does he do that? He does that by bearing their sins and pouring out his soul unto death, that text says. God made a covenant with his people. He said, I will provide a way of salvation for them. Jesus had already spoken in John 10, 45, that his death was to be a vicarious death. It was to be in the place of another on behalf of another. He gave his life as a ransom for us. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, God has promised a way of salvation right after the fall. He said he would provide a way of salvation. And here, Jesus is showing that it is through his broken body and his blood poured out for us that these covenant promises are fulfilled. This meal is a covenant meal. And it's also a communion meal. We often call it communion. When you commune with someone, you share thoughts, desires, feelings. You are drawn together. You draw life from one another. And in the Lord's Supper, when we partake of the elements of the bread and the wine or juice, we commune with the Lord to whom we are joined in a mysterious union. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, this cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? There's a, there's a fellowship, there's a sharing, there is a communion as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We are united with Christ. Paul loves that phrase, in him, that he uses again and again. And we are reminded of our union with Christ as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus, of course, is speaking metaphorically, but more importantly, Christ is speaking spiritually 
in this text from John 6. As we partake of the bread and the wine, we are feeding spiritually upon Christ. By faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are nourished by the body and blood of Christ as we receive the bread and wine. We draw strength, we draw spiritual nourishment from the Lord Jesus as we are united to him and partake of the elements. Just as in the other sacrament that we celebrate, baptism, that is the sign and seal of the believer's initiation into union with Christ. And the Lord's Supper strengthens the believer's ongoing union with Christ. We are united with Christ. Romans 6 says that we died with him in his death. Colossians 2 says that we are raised with him. <clears throat> we live in and through him. When we partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper, we should sense in a very real way that we are his and that he is ours and that our lives are hidden in him. This, the Lord's Supper is communion with our crucified and risen Lord. This me the meal also speaks of consummation. And there is a sense in which this meal that, that Jesus celebrated here in our text, it, there's a sense in which it is not complete. That fourth cup, Jesus never drank. Instead, he said, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus came to establish the kingdom of earth, uh, kingdom of God upon the earth, and he did that in his coming and in the work that he did. And he was clearly preparing to die in this text, to give his life as a ransom for many. And in his death and resurrection, Christ dealt the death blow to Satan. Christ has conquered. And yet, we live, as we say, between the already and the not yet. The already of Christ's inbreaking in and establishing his kingdom initially. And yet, we are, we are still waiting to see the full consummation of his kingdom. Satan is still working. And we must be aware of that. Scripture warns us of that, that we must be wary of his schemes, that he goes about like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. But we look forward to the full and complete establishment of the kingdom of God, where Satan will be bound and, and all mankind will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we see in this text... Jesus tells us that there's something to look forward to. There's communion with him in a very different way that we have to look forward to. When we can celebrate the completion of this supper with him. It's very possible that that is what is portrayed in Revelation 19. What's often called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ is waiting to drink that fourth cup with his people. He is waiting to drink it new with us. We, however, are on a journey and we look forward to that day. We look back to the covenant promises given in the Old Testament and the covenant that was established before the foundation of the world. We know that Jesus came 
And he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If we, by God's grace, are saved, we are participants in that kingdom. That kingdom is here, yet it is not completely fulfilled. We live between the already and the not yet. And as pilgrims here on this journey, we have opportunity to be nourished spiritually as we partake of the Lord's Supper. The meal speaks of covenant, of communion, and it points forward to consummation. Secondly, and briefly, I want us to look at verses 26 to 31 and the failing of the Lord's disciples. And I want us to see the contrast between Christ's faithfulness in what he was about to do and what he said was going to happen to the disciples, that they all forsook him and that Peter, the one that we always see speaking up, would deny him three times that very night. Jesus was not just the victim. He looked like the victim. And yes, he gave himself as a sacrifice and he is the Lamb of God. Yet he knew that he was going to do what he came to do. He was very much in control of that. He was faithful, whereas the disciples failed and forsook him. And just two brief points under this heading... And that's the prophecy of Christ and the pride of Peter. This Passover meal that we just read in verses 22 to 25 is really framed by two betrayals. Judas beforehand, where Jesus prophesied that betrayal, and the prophecy of Peter's denial in the verses that we read. Jesus knew the situation. He knew what was coming and he told them what was coming and to some degree how it was going to happen. He knew the situation and he also knew his disciples. He knew their weaknesses. He knew their lack of faith or at least their immature faith. And Jesus knows you too and me. He knows our failings. He knows of your weaknesses and the immaturity of your faith. At the time that these men should have stood most resolutely with Jesus. They forsook him and fled. The shepherd, the good shepherd, was about to be struck. He was about to be dealt that blow spoken of in Isaiah 53, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And in that hour, his closest associates fled. They left him. They fell away. And on one hand, it's troubling to think about these men, these, these men, even those on the inner circle of Peter, James, and John, failing Christ, that after walking with Jesus for three years, that they could turn away and fall. Yet it's sweetly assuring as well, because even for myself, after walking with Christ for most of my life, I recognize ways in which I fail. And I'm ashamed at my faltering devotion at times to him. And yet in that hour, Jesus loved them. He didn't simply cast them off for their failings. He spoke hope to them. He reassured them. He reminded them that he was going to rise again. He spoke of their future together. He said that he would go before them to Galilee. And Jesus loves you too. Even in your sin and in your lack of faith. That's not to say he loves your sin. He does not. And there may well be consequences for sins that you commit. But Christ loves his people even when they stray. 
In the words of J.C. Ryle, our Lord is a merciful and compassionate high priest. It is his glory to pass over the transgressions of his people and to cover their many sins. He knows what they were before conversion, wicked, guilty, and defiled, yet he loves them. Ryle goes on to say he knows what they will be after conversion, weak, erring, and frail, yet he loves them. He has undertaken to save them, notwithstanding all their shortcomings and what he has undertaken, he will perform. He ever lives to make intercession for us. What he has begun, he will complete. Jesus loved these men and he spoke of a future with them. Yet they seemed to miss it. They were so absorbed in other things. Whatever was like right in front of them is all that they could see. Probably they were absorbed in themselves, so often we are as well. They missed the hope and the comfort that they should have received from Jesus' words. They were near despair at Christ's crucifixion and, and at the resurrection. They couldn't believe that Christ had been raised, even though he had told them that he would. This should have comforted them, but they missed it entirely. And as I thought about that, I thought, how often do we disregard God's promises or just kind of pass over them completely? Because all we can see is this, this troubling thing, this trial that's right before us. We have much to hold on to in God's word, and yet we often fail to grasp the sweet promises that are ours. We also see in this second section the pride of Peter in particular. Once again, Peter is front and center, speaking up, speaking about his devotion to the Lord. And Jesus says, well, Peter, you're going to deny me. And he says, in a, to paraphrase, no way, Lord, not me. Even if everyone leaves, I'm staying. I will be true to you if I'm the only one. And Jesus kindly says, no, Peter. Not only are you going to deny me once, you're going to deny me three times this very night before the rooster crows twice. Now, if you have had roosters, if you've had chickens, you know they crow early. We, when we lived in Kansas, we had some chickens and, and it was when we lived in town. Um, and I got a call one Sunday morning about uh, six o'clock and, and my, my dear elderly neighbor said, Jason, your rooster is crowing and has been since 5 a.m., and so I kindly thanked her and shut the chicken house so she wouldn't hear it so, so much. And uh, the rooster found a new home that week because I tried to love my neighbor more than the rooster, although it was a, a beautiful buff Orpington. But he, um, um, that, that rooster crowed early. So what Jesus is saying, and it was probably already dark when Jesus was saying this, and what Jesus is saying, in the next few hours, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And so in Peter's mind, that was just preposterous. He couldn't imagine doing that to his Lord. They had just shared, think of it, they had just shared the Passover meal, that great high uh, feast of, of, of who they were as, as Jewish people, as, as followers of God. And Jesus is saying, no, Peter, tonight, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter spoke as emphatically as he could, saying, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But that's exactly what he did. He did deny the Lord even 
Scripture tells us with an oath, he, he cursed because he was so frustrated at the situation and, and at the fact, it seemed like, of being asked once again if he was one of Christ's disciples. Be careful never to say, I would never. We must always keep a heart of humility. We must know that were it not for the grace of God, there go I. There, there we could go too. Were it not for God's grace, our confidence cannot be in ourselves, but only in the risen Lord. Proverbs 16 reminds us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Jesus told us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. The Westminster Shorter Catechism in commenting about that phrase says that that. In praying thus, we pray that God would either keep us from being tempted to sin or support and deliver us when we are tempted. And yes, there are sins that are so grievous and heinous in which we think, no, I I would never, I could never, and I trust that is true. And yet we need to recognize that we must have God's grace and we must walk closely to God and we must pray this prayer, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Jesus told these very disciples a few hours later as he prayed in Gethsemane, and we should take this to heart. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, I I love J.C. Ryle's chapter on this text. He said, There is no degree of sin into which the greatest saint may not run if he is not held up by the grace of God, and if he does not watch and pray. The seeds of every wickedness lie hidden in our hearts. They only need the convenient season to spring forth into mischievous vitality. I think we need to be soberly aware of this And we do need to watch and pray. Yet Jesus loved these failing disciples. He loved the prideful Peter. He loved them and he loves you and I so much that he provided a way of salvation. He knew that that the blood that he was preparing to shed in the coming hours would atone for those sins of Peter and the other disciples and yours and mine as well. Jesus did not drink that fourth cup at that supper, yet he did not shrink from drinking the full cup of the wrath of God that was against you and I in our sin. He drunk it down to the dregs for you and for me. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that table is for deniers. That table is for those that fail. That table is for followers of Christ that fail. The difference between Judas and Peter was that Peter came back to be restored. So what about you? If you stray from the Lord, do you do like Judas and run and not seek a place of repentance? Or do you, like Peter, come back and seek restoration? Remember John 21, there at the end of of the Gospel of John, We read in in some of Christ's final words that that John the Apostle records. He he records this beautiful interaction between Peter and the risen Lord where, where Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, oh, Lord, yes, I love you. And he asks him again. And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. 
And he says, feed my sheep. And he asks him that third time, he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Peter returned to the Lord. Peter embraced the work that the faithful Savior did on his behalf. Will you? Let us pray.